Welcome to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the biggest decisions taken that have shaped our world, as well as the choices being made today and those that are yet to be made and will affect us all. We speak to leaders and decision makers around the world about why they made the choices they did and what choices they would make today. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. And today we hear from Dr. Robert Gates, one of the top leaders in national security in recent years. One of only two secretaries of defense who've also served as head of the CIA. Naturally, he is an old contact of my co-host, former chief of Britain's secret intelligence service, Sir Richard Dearlove. Hey Richard, how are you? (laughs) Very well. It's a long time since we've seen each other. Yes, indeed. A a lot of water has flowed under the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) way too much yeah well I I was trying to work out when we last saw each other I guess it was when I was chief of station in Washington maybe after that once or twice I moved as far from Washington DC as I could get in the continental United States probably uh, doesn't make it any easier to reach Well, I am thrilled to be welcoming to the podcast today Secretary Robert Gates, former Secretary for Defense from 2006 to 2011, spanning two U.S. administrations, President Bush and President Obama, the only Defense Secretary in U.S. history to be asked to stay in office by a newly elected president. He was also Director of Central Intelligence under President Bush from 1991 to 1993. That job no longer exists, but basically, uh, Dr. Gates, you were head of the CIA and the equivalent to the Director of National Intelligence at the same time, I believe. Thank you so much for joining us today on One Decision. It's my pleasure. I wanted to start the conversation today because we've recently had the new national defense strategy, uh, which was released, and it has interestingly reprioritized the threats facing the United States to a one plus one plus three construct, which uh, has China described as the most consequential strategic competitor, uh, followed by acute threats from Russia. And then the plus three is persistent threats, including those from North Korea, Iran, and violent extremist organizations. Now, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but I wanted to ask for our first question today, what is, in your opinion, the biggest security threat facing the United States today? I think the actual greatest threat facing the United States right now uh, is found within the two square miles that encompass the White House and the Capitol building. Uh, Because if we can't get past our paralysis and our extreme polarization, uh, there is no threat uh, from abroad uh, that holds uh, as great a danger uh, for the United States uh, as as that internal uh, problem. That said, I, th- I think that um, the, uh, I wish that the administration had, had and its predecessors, frankly, uh, had understood the need for a global strategy uh, before uh, the Russians invaded Ukraine. Uh, it's been obvious uh, since at least 2008 and the invasion of Georgia that Putin was an aggressive player and that Russia would be a challenge for the United States and its allies going forward. Uh, I think that the greater long-term challenge uh, is China uh, because it's a multi-dimensional challenge. Uh, It's very similar, you know, when people say we're in a new Cold War, um, my reaction is that I think that understates the problem. 
uh, and the challenge because the the Soviet Union was really a, a single dimensional power. It, it had um, uh, oil and gas, but mainly it had nuclear weapons and and uh, and its economy was not integrated with the rest of the world. It didn't have uh, effective diplomacy or leadership. And China is, a, ha, is a, a threat in a number of different arenas, beginning with the economic challenge uh, posed for the rest of the world. And uh, the Belt and Road and, you know, part of Belt and Road is at this point the Chinese own or manage uh, several dozen of the most important ports in the world. So China's a much richer country, much smarter government than the Soviets had. And, and so I think we will find them a challenge on a, on a number of different levels, including, for example, strategic communications. Uh, Hu Jintao in the early 2000s invested $7 billion in a strategic communications to build a strategic communications capability for, for China that we now see all over the world. In, in various uh, aspects. So, so I think in terms of a long-term challenge, uh, China is clearly the, uh, the most important uh, that we will face and the most, uh, and the most difficult. But we should have recognized uh, long ago that Putin was not to be written off. Uh, Obama dismissed him as a regional player, uh, dismissed Russia as a regional player, a weak regional player. Uh, President Trump had this weird personal relationship with uh, with Vladimir Putin, and and uh, the Biden administration, when it took office, basically said they're going to park Russia uh, off to the side and not uh, uh, and not focus on it. And and I think they all three uh, seriously erred uh, in underestimating Russia. So I think. The revision to the national security uh, strategy was, uh, frankly, a, a, a catch-up uh, kind of uh, effort. Uh, the previous drafts had all been focused on the pivot to Asia and, and on China, and 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 they and they have to they've had to realize that that they need a global strategy because for the first time since World War II. We face powerful adversaries both in Europe and in Asia. Uh, you've touched upon uh, so so many questions that I hope that we have time to cover on in the course of this discussion. But uh, since you mentioned the signs that we missed, I want to bring up uh, an op-ed actually that you wrote back in 2014 when the annexation of Crimea took place. And you wrote uh, about... President Vladimir Putin, he will not be satisfied or rest until a pro-Russian government is restored in Kyiv. You called, in that same article, you called for investment in Russia to be curtailed, for Russia to be expelled from the G8, for Europe to reduce its reliance on Russian oil and gas, for US military withdrawals from Europe to be halted, and for the EU to grant associate status to Moldova, Georgia and Ukraine. I think we'll agree that that assessment has aged incredibly well. Um, interestingly, today we hear that Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, has said that he backs uh, granting candidate status to Moldova and Ukraine, which I think is a really important uh, development. Uh, but I just want to ask, is the crisis today 
Would you say it is a direct result of the failure of Western leadership? And would you say that that in itself is a reason why those who advocate for non-interventionist foreign policies, who say that the US needs to stop meddling in the affairs of other countries, might be wrong? I think that uh, we're seeing in Ukraine what happens when the United States doesn't take the leadership and conversely, what happens when it does. So I think we ended up where we are in Ukraine because the West in general and the U.S. in particular did not take Putin seriously and essentially let the invasion of Georgia, the attacks, on, the cyber attacks on Estonia, um, the um, the actions that they've taken in Ukraine in 2014 and so on, basically let the Russians off with a slap on the wrist and uh, and the Europeans really didn't want to do anything and and. If there's anything that's clear about Vladimir Putin, he he uh, he epitomizes uh, Lenin's uh, approach that basically is you push and push and push, and as long as you can keep pushing and there's no resistance, keep pushing. And only when you run into resistance, uh, only when you run into steel, uh, do you then stop. And and uh, there was no resistance to Putin's ambitions essentially to restore the Russian empire. And I think a lot of people underestimated Putin's uh, determination. I think, I think the West in general uh, dramatically underestimated the magnitude of humiliation felt in Russia by the collapse of the Soviet Union, because it really wasn't just the collapse of the Soviet Union, but the collapse of, of the 400-year-old Russian empire. And, and uh, we just weren't listening to what they were saying. And and uh, or we thought it was just just idle rhetoric. So I think I think that Putin's willingness to to take these risks. I think we contributed. I think our responses to his earlier actions contributed to him believing that the Western response would not be a strong one. Uh, and when I talked about the converse aspect of U.S. leadership, what's really remarkable is how quickly despite all of the comments about the U.S. withdrawing and about the U.S. not having influence and so on and so forth, how quickly the administration brought uh, together the alliance and other countries, including Japan and Australia and so on, how quickly they brought them all together. And really the imposition of extraordinary sanctions, uh, really nothing like it against a major economy um, in modern times. And... Um, so I think you saw a demonstration of, of, first of all, that the U.S. still has the capacity to lead. And I think it feeds, uh, helps deal with the argument in the United States that we shouldn't be the world policeman. We're not involving U.S. troops. We're basically serving as an arsenal for Ukraine, as are other countries, or our countries in Europe. But the speed with which the administration was able to assemble this coalition and the actions they've taken is is encouraging uh, given the history of the past uh, 10 or a dozen years so i think i think it's interesting absolutely um uh very important to point out how effectively the united states was able to rally other countries uh, in its alliance to, in support of ukraine uh but at this point i want to bring in uh my uh, partner in crime, Sir Richard Dealer, former chief of MI6, because the question I have is that uh, what Dr. Gates, you're, you're totally right in that, you know, the last few months we've really seen American leadership uh, rejuvenated by this whole crisis. But before the day that Putin actually launched 
uh, troops into Ukraine, the Biden administration was singing from the rooftops that invasion was imminent. And it seemed that no, not many people took the administration seriously. So why, why do you think that was? Well, I'm pretty sure this is speculative because obviously I'm no longer centrally in the know as I would have been in the past, that uh, there were clear signs both at the t tactical and strategic level from US and other countries' intelligence, probably the UK principally, which indicated that the build-up of forces was a deployment which was designed for specifically for an invasion. I mean, for example, like where your military hospitals are sited and, you know, how much mobility your front troops have got. I mean, to be honest, um, I was sceptical. I thought that the Russians would do everything except take that really decisive step and invade. But, I mean, as it turns out, the warnings that were issued were correct. And, uh, I mean, hats off to the former analysts that Dr. Gates and I would have um, worked with that they, you know, they got it right. They got it. I mean, I, I think that you probably also have to speculate that it wasn't just observation. It just wasn't only analysis. I would imagine there was some human intelligence available uh, in relation to the plans going on inside the Kremlin. I, I mean, uh, I, I, I think to make that degree of accuracy and prediction, your coverage probably has to be pretty good. But that's purely speculative. I don't know. I don't. I. I. I doubt that Dr. Gates is specific. He might be, but specifically in the know either. But I mean, the intelligence community carried out an, an impressive analysis and got it right. And as we know from other crises, it's quite difficult to get these predictions right. You're not actually in the mind of Putin. Um, and you know, we've all heard that sort of statement there are mysteries and there are secrets um this in a way what putin was going to do almost had status as a mystery but clearly the preparation was such that you know they got it they, they got the prediction exactly correct and hats off to the people that did that now i just wanted to add that you know i think that one of the toughest um uh things in the intelligence business is predicting intentions um, intelligence is really good at measuring capabilities and uh, technical qualities and so on. But measuring intentions is very difficult. Uh, the Soviets invaded uh, Czechoslovakia on my third day at CIA. <laughs> and the forces had all been aligned at, oh, wow. on, on the border of Czechoslovakia. But there were lots of reasons for them not to go into Czechoslovakia as well as to go in. And so I think people were surprised, even though they knew that the Russians, the Soviets could go in at any moment, um, they didn't have any information on whether in fact they would take that step. Exactly the same thing happened on Christmas and uh, Christmas 1979 with respect to uh, Afghanistan. Um, the analysts put together the pros and cons, and the cons against the Soviets invading Afghanistan were so overwhelming in terms of the problems they would face that there basically was a sentiment that, that they probably wouldn't do it. But then, um, as we know now, um, Brezhnev and a handful of others made the decision to, to go in. So I, I think one of the real achievements of, of this um, 
pre-Ukraine intelligence was not just monitoring the capabilities of the Russians, but actually getting intent right. And I think Sir Richard is right. Uh, again, I've, I've been away from it for a long time, but I think the odds are very high. They had uh, remarkably good human intelligence, and it must be driving Putin crazy uh, to know that somewhere in his apparatus is a, is a mole. Um, is somebody who is leaking information because we're not just hearing about the big things such as intent to invade, but we're hearing about his behavior in meetings, about his per, about his uh, uh, actions and behavior toward his colleagues and so on. And, and so I think this is a big achievement. One of the criticisms that's being leveled against intelligence now is that, is that um, they didn't properly measure the will of the Ukrainian forces and, and, and the incompetence of the Russian military leadership and the Russian forces. Um, in all honesty, I have, and in all the years I spent in, and I'd love to hear what Sir Richard thinks, but I, if, if measuring intentions is difficult uh, under the best of circumstances, Measuring the will of a people or the incompetence of a military, I think, borders on the impossible. I think at certain point, people, policymakers need to understand there are limits to what intelligence can provide. And, and how you measure the will of the Ukrainian people or the will of their soldiers and how you measure courage and so on. I don't know how you do that. There's there's no single source or there's no, you know, polling or whatever whatever options there are. I, I just think that that's an, a not a legitimate criticism of of intelligence. And I think it's remarkable what the Ukrainian military have achieved in the face of pretty much overwhelming odds. Most of us assumed that the Russians would drive through to Kiev in a month or six weeks, and that, you know, the Russians would probably have the capability quickly to depose the government, to put a puppet government in place. And yet, you know, they suffered down that northern valley, down the, from the north, you know, horrendous military defeat. I mean, that's the truth of it. I mean, we have given great credibility to the Russian military in certain situations, but in this particular situation, they have performed appallingly badly. If there's anyone that ought to be unhappy about the quality of intelligence he got, it would be Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, just to illustrate um, expectations, uh, we now know that the Russians who actually came down from the north and were headed for Kiev had five days logistics support and actually had packed their ceremonial uniforms for the victory parade in Kiev. That's how confident they were. They were going to, how fast well, they were I, going to get. I was recently told, like, yeah, I've recently been in Central Europe and someone told me that the Russians had paid off a lot of the local governments, but had, but that the, the people that they had paid off, who they expected, as it were, to side with them immediately, were under the control of the Ukrainian services and had been told to act as though they were accepting the payoff and that they would get the balance of the money later. 
And in fact, the Russians were really suckered into thinking that a lot of the local administrations north of Kiev would welcome them. But in fact, the opposite was true. And I, I mean, if that is the case, I mean, Bob, you're absolutely right. The, the, the Russians were sort of suckered into believing that, um, you know, they could just drive through and there would be very little conflict. And you're right, they had their dress uniforms packed in the back of their tanks and expected to be in a military parade down the central street in Kyiv within five days. That That's extraordinary. I, I think that both of you have picked up on something very interesting, and that is this potential shortfall or difficulty that the gathering of intelligence has and in failing... Uh, to foresee the willpower and the morale of the Ukrainian resistance as well as the incompetence of uh, the Russian military. There was also a failure to to foresee um, the lack of morale uh, in, in the Afghan army that was so key to the Taliban being able to sweep through. I mean, is there a common failure here in the way the West handles intelligence gathering and 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 how and what it does with information it gets on the ground that have led to these big holes in in what we have understood uh, to be the case on the ground and then actually the reality ends up to be manifoldly quite different well actually what i think happened in afghanistan was a policy failure not an intelligence failure uh, the fact is our military predicted uh, all along, that if there was a complete withdrawal of American and allied forces from Afghanistan, that the Afghan army wouldn't last very long. We, I think we made an error in the way we designed the Afghan forces because we made them more like a miniature of our own in terms of being heavily dependent on logistics and technology and maintenance capabilities and so on, most of which are provided in Afghanistan by contractors who were there because they were protected by uh, American and allied forces. And my view is uh, when, when the Afghans dis discovered, when we pulled out altogether and the contractors pulled out, the frontline Afghan soldiers were not getting uh, provisions, they weren't getting um, food, they weren't getting ammunition, they weren't getting helicopter support, they had no medical support. And, and if there was anything uh, that you was easily predictable, it was under those circumstances, the Afghan army would collapse. And, and um, our military told our policymakers that. They told President Trump that, and they told President Biden that. And, and the decision was made to move forward and, and, and regardless of those likely consequences. So I think that, quote unquote, the failure to predict the um, um, the collapse of the Afghan army is, is a canard. Uh, I think our military predicted it uh, pretty much right on target. Then d does that mean then by extension you believe that the administration knew exactly what was going to happen when it pulled out of Afghanistan? I think that they hoped against hope and went against the advice of, of their military advisors. Uh, I think that Richard is, all of us who've been in the intelligence business have a lot of experience with policy failures being characterized as intelligence failures. Yes, you can say that again. I've been the butt end of those problems on some, well, several really famous occasions, and it, it's a tough situation to be in. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I really agree with what Bob's saying about Afghanistan. I think it was a policy failure. And I mean, when I left office in 2004, um, you know, we actually had a rather different design for Afghanistan than the one that subsequently developed. And I think that design, which was rather more dependent on, uh, you know, special forces, smaller units, um, I don't think it would have, let's put it like this, I'm not sure it would have been any less successful uh, and it might have been more successful in the medium to long term. But, you know, we, we all know the complexities of involvement in Afghanistan. We've all read the history and we, we all know what's happened to invaders since the 19th century, if, the, uh, if you take the Afghan point of view. But uh, I, th I think it was, a, it was an, in my view, it was an unnecessary catastrophe what happened when we withdrew. Well, Dr. Gates, I want to ask you, because in your book, Duty Memoirs of a Secretary at War, you claimed that President uh, Joe Biden has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. I know that quote has been uh, handed back to you several times in media appearances since then. Uh, you have stood by that claim uh, since, uh, including recently when it came to the pulling out of Afghanistan. But the question I'd like to ask you is that what should we have done instead of unilaterally pulling out? And also, does the ensuing instability and repression ca being carried out by the Taliban, in your opinion, does that mean it is likely that Western troops will one day have to return to Afghanistan? I would be very surprised to see Western troops uh, return to Afghanistan. Um, I think there is, if, if, we, if we were attacked, from out of Afghanistan again um, by terrorists. Uh, you might see uh, special forces go back in in small but very targeted ways to go after the terrorists specifically. Uh, but I think the likelihood of of um, of them of the um, of any sizable Western force going into Afghanistan again uh, is is highly unlikely. I think that uh, you know our military argued that uh, with the administration that leaving four or five thousand troops in Afghanistan and probably there would have been almost an equivalent number of Allied forces stay uh, with us that that would have been sufficient to sustain uh, and keep the Afghan army uh, in the fight, if you will. I think it's true that, that uh, after we pulled out the bulk of our forces, the Taliban were slowly taking more and more of the rural areas, uh, returning to rural areas where they'd been pushed out during our surge in 2009 and 2010. But I think the, the outcome um, would have taken much longer and, and might have turned out differently had we sustained a small force uh, in Afghanistan, as we have done in a variety of other countries around the world, uh, we could have prevented uh, the catastrophe that took place. How did it make you feel personally to see those crowds of people trying to leave, the stories of Afghan interpreters, interlocutors, people who worked at the embassy, 
being left behind and being forced to fend for themselves, many of whom had said they felt abandoned by their former colleagues, by the Brits, by the Americans. Personally, how did that make you feel? Well, I was feeling pretty low for a few days and I couldn't figure it out. And then I suddenly realized that it was, it was just um, both frustration and sadness at, at the catastrophe that unfolded and, and um, the suffering that the Afghan people were going to endure because of a policy mistake. And, um, and, and my belief that, um, that we had also, like the Iraqis, our surge had given the Afghan politicians a little space in which to try and organize their country and to be a more effective government. You know, the reality is that uh, as messy as it is uh, and as flawed as it is, the Iraqi government is the only real democracy in the entire region. And, and the politicians are yelling at each other and not shooting at each other. Uh, and, and so the, the Iraqis in many ways took advantage of our surge. And as I say, as messy as it all was and complicated and frustrating, they, they did take advantage. And, and I think the Afghan leadership, uh, first President Karzai and then President Ghani uh, and, and all of the different factions uh, really uh, threw away the opportunity uh, that they had been given. So I think it's also uh, important as we're ascribing uh, responsibility for failure, uh, the, the Afghan leaders themselves have to take a, a, a significant measure of that responsibility. I think Dr. Gay is saying something really important because historically, I'm pretty sure that you, there will be a big contrast, you know, let's say in 10, 15 years when historians look at Afghanistan and historians look at Iraq. And uh, we don't necessarily appreciate it now, but I think those of us who've been closely involved in Iraq realize that Iraq actually might turn out to be a success in terms of what the end game will look like, I mean, if there is a political end game, whereas, you know, the policy failure in Afghanistan is clear cut and rather stark. And uh, I would argue that Iraq was not a policy failure, but might actually be judged historically a success. And I think that's a very uh, controversial thing to say, but I think it's really important to make that contrast. And I'd actually be interested to know what Dr. Gates thinks about that. Well, I, I mean, I agree. I think I think that the 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 book is still open on Iraq, and and uh, it's interesting that um, that the talks between the Saudis and the Iranians are actually taking place in Baghdad, and and there there is a role that that uh, that the Iraqis can play, uh, and. And, you know, it, it's not going to look like Vermont. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always going to be uh, very rough, very violent. But that's sort of the history of Iraq. And, and, uh, but but these, these three major ethnic groups are trying to figure out how to live with each other. The Sunnis, the Shia, the Kurds. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, 
They haven't, re they haven't reverted to a dictatorship, to a military dictatorship. They haven't reverted or have, have not turned into a, a theocratic state. They're still having elections. Elections are pretty flawed. Uh, I, I, think, I think we probably are in no position to brag or to point fingers on problematic elections. But uh, anyway, I think, I, I, think, I think Richard's right. I think that this, is a, this, this story has not ended yet. And, but right now, uh, where we are in Iraq or where Iraq is, is, I mean, the contrast with where Afghanistan is, I think is really stark. I'm going to be a bit bold and say I disagree with both of you, esteemed gentlemen, um, purely just because I I am still sort of shocked by how all Iraqi defences, and not just in a it, not just in a military defence, but also in a societal sense, were just swept aside by ISIS in twenty in 2014, losing the you know the the biggest uh, city they had in the north and how long it took to re-establish their control in this in this area. Well, that was part of the sort of evolution of Iraq. And there was a yeah. specific reason why it happened, which was largely because, in my view, the disbandment of the Iraqi army and a lot of those uh, people who, you know, could have been used to keep law and order mm -hmm. uh, in Iraq were actually sort of displaced and became almost a vagrant army and therefore were very susceptible to being picked up by ISIS. But anyway, that, that's an issue for historical debate and quite a complex one. I would just say there is another factor involved in the, in the uh, collapse of the Iraqi army around Mosul. <clears throat> um, and that is that when we left, we had, um, we had basically selected and trained most of the senior officers in the Iraqi uh, military. And after we left Iraq, Maliki and the other political leaders in Iraq replaced all of those trained, capable senior officers in the Iraqi army that we had had a role in preparing, replaced them with political hacks and totally corrupt individuals. The soldiers all knew this. And they were not going to give up. And, and the generals in the Mosul area were the first to flee. And those soldiers were not going to give up their lives for a bunch of corrupt generals. So I think, I think it's a more complex story than, uh, than might superficially appear to be the case. Absolutely, I absolutely, absolutely take, your, take your point on that. We have moved uh, from uh, Russia to Afghanistan to Iraq. And you mentioned the talks between the Saudis and the Iranians going on uh, in Iraq. And so I do want to ask you um, about the situation with the Gulf nations. Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, have traditionally been counterterrorism partners with the West. Biden is going to be headed uh, later to Saudi to try and patch things up with MBS after things soured uh, over a number of things, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the resumption of the Iran nuclear talks, and the lack of support for MBS's brutal war in Yemen. And I mean, the Saudis are also pretty upset at the lack of US uh, responses to attacks on its oil plants and its facilities in recent years by the Houthis. There's also the Gulf nations um, and their response to Putin's war, the sheltering of Russian oligarchs and Russian money uh, post-sanctions. And so I wanted to ask both of you, um, 
Is this part of the world still seen as important for the US to cultivate ties or has Washington taken a back step and perhaps wrongly uh, in its investment in the Middle East because of the threat of the East distracting the administration from it? Um, Well, first of all, three successive administrations have signaled that they want to be less involved in the Middle East. It started with uh, President Obama. Uh, It continued under President Trump and and um, has continued under uh, President Biden up until now. And and as the Gulf states saw the United States declaring, I mean, it was no secret that we wanted to be less engaged in the region. They began looking at their alternatives. And uh, for the first time, they began looking to Russia to buy weapons. Um, and and they were concerned by the fact that the ally they thought would be there for them, particularly with Iran, um, was no longer reliable. And I think that the Obama administration's uh, focus on the Iran nuclear deal was precisely the kind of grand bargain that had worried the Gulf Arabs uh, all along, that the U.S. would at some point cut a deal with Iran that was good for the United States, but not so good for anybody in the neighborhood. And, and so it's not been a surprise to me that these, uh, that these leaders in the region have put some distance between themselves and the United States. And for example, um, Mohammed bin Zayed was just furious when the Houthis launched missile attacks against um, the UAE and the U.S. did nothing. They didn't even call uh, to express condolences or sympathy or what can we do to help or anything. And MBZ has been one of the strongest allies of the United States for a long time. And, and he wouldn't even take calls from the Secretary of State. He was so angry. He was afraid he would say something that would have permanent consequences. And, and uh, granted, neither Russia nor uh, both Russia and China are also cultivating good relations with Iran. But beneath the surface, as we've seen, as, as we've talked about, so are the Saudis. And the UAE has always maintained a back channel with the Iranians. So they're very concerned about Iran and Iran, Iran's meddling in the region. Um, and I think, I think one, of the, one of the results of the U.S. pulling back has been the success of the Abraham Accords, and and now the Saudis becoming involved in that of, of, of sort of the Gulf Arabs buying into the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and uh, and so you've seen a really a sea change in the relationship between Israel and the Gulf Arabs, and so I think I think that whole region is more in flux than it has been in a in a very long time. And, and I think the principal reason for it has, have been missteps by the United States. I agree with that analysis. I mean, historically, there have only been relatively brief periods when the Middle East was at the center of U.S. foreign policy. And we've just been through that sort of period. You could argue, you know, it, it almost is an aberration. What we see now is a reordering of the pieces and I I think Bob's analysis is absolutely spot on and I I think the Abraham Accords 
at the moment have changed the game. And I was speaking recently to a Gulf Arab minister, and I was absolutely staggered when he described to me the extent of the contact and discussion that was going on in his ministry with Israel. And I think, you know, this is very, very surprising. And, you know, a few years back would have been completely unthinkable. So there's no question that the tectonic plates are shifting. And, you know, we don't yet see quite how they're going to reorientate themselves. And I, I think... I mean, I think U.S. foreign policy in the area is is somewhat confused at the moment. But I think clearly the administration wants to get out of wars in the Middle East, but that doesn't necessarily mean abandoning main, the maintaining important friendships and alliances. And what would one phone call have cost? And that's what I think is very interesting because what happens when there is that void left behind when this region feels the US is not their friend? Fair enough if they want to stop their forever wars in the Middle East, but then there are ways to maintain strategic partnerships outside of a military sense. And then who else will step into that void? Dr. Gates, will it be Russia? Will it be China? Who do you think is going to replace the US in that space? I don't think anyone in particular is going to replace the United States. I think both Russia and China will be very opportunistic. And, you know, the Chinese are particularly interested because of their dependency on Middle East oil and gas. Uh, and so they have multiple interests in, in cultivating those relationships. Uh, I, I think that... Um, I think um, the Russians will sell arms to anybody who will buy them. Uh, I mean, I just show you how things have, cha have changed. For the first time since 1973, the Russians are back in Egypt. Uh, and the Egyptians, Sisi, uh, feeling abandoned by the U.S. because of um, um, human rights issues and so on, is now turning for the first time since the Yom Kippur War and Henry Kissinger got him out of the region uh, are returning to Egypt with, with significant arms sales, uh, and they're very active in Africa as well. You know, the fact that, I mean, the administration, I think, has come to the realization that they screwed up in their relationship with the Gulf Arabs. And so you had Tony Blinken, Secretary Blinken, make a trip, and finally MBZ agreed to see him. And Blinken did exactly the right thing. When he, when he first sat down with MBZ, he said, we made a big mistake uh, in not responding to your security needs. And now you have this security relationship uh, or accord being negotiated between the U.S. and the UAE. Who knows what that will look like and what kind of commitments it involves and whether it will be sustained under uh, the next president. But I think there's been some recognition, including the trip to Saudi Arabia uh, by Biden, that that. Uh, that we actually need to cultivate a good relationship with these countries uh, because even if we aren't significantly dependent on Middle East oil, the, the, the price shows that the supply is fungible. And, and so if, if, um, if the Middle East isn't producing or if Russia is not producing or being able to sell, that the cost of fuel is going to go through the roof. And we've seen that. And that's, I think, the main reason Biden's going there is to is to see if they can open up the taps a little more. I think that they're trying to sort of 
make up for lost time and lost ground. I'm not sure how effective it'll be. Well, well, that remains to be seen. I want to turn to China because the US has been trying for more than for 10 years now to actualize this pivot to Asia, which was coined during President Obama's administration. And you were defense secretary during the earlier years of this recalibration. Um, one of the most important aspects of this I want to ask about is is Taiwan. I mean, President Biden has stated that the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense militarily should the island be attacked by China. Although I think the official policy is a strategic ambiguity on such an event taking place. Uh I also just want to quickly raise the worrying development this week that President Xi Jinping signed a directive allowing for non-war uses of the military, which is now raising concerns that it would pave the way for an invasion of Taiwan that would be categorized as a special military operation and not an outright war. We've heard of that one before quite recently, haven't we, with uh, Russia's special operation in Ukraine, which is perhaps where Xi took his, in his uh, influence from. Dr. Gates, in your opinion, should the US go to war to protect Taiwan? And if it did, what do you assess would be its likely ch chances of success? I actually think maintaining the, the policy that we have had for a long time, including strategic ambiguity, is the right place to go. I think we signal, make, make a powerful signal if we enhance and expand our military sales to Taiwan and, and our training of Taiwanese. That basically sends, I think, a powerful message uh, to, uh, to the Chinese. I think, I think Xi Jinping uh, has to be looking at um, Ukraine uh, and, and one would hope absorbing some of the lessons. First, the, the question is um, how fast the West came together with crippling sanctions. Those sanctions would really have major impact on China. The second is he's got to wonder uh, about if, if the Russian military is as incompetent as it has proved to be, he's got to wonder about his own military. And then third, uh, how the Ukrainians have resisted and, and what the Taiwanese might do. I think, I think that the question of, of what you do if deterrence fails um, has to be basically situational. For example, I think there's one uh, there's a strategy the Chinese could pursue, which I call nibbling. So they could take, they could seize a few of the uh, Taiwanese uh, islands that are actually much closer to China than they are to Taiwan, and basically assert that this is Taiwan does belong to China, and we've just shown it by taking these islands. Neither the United States or Taiwan are going to go to war over a few islands. Another option is uh, quarantine. Uh, to basically stop any resupply of weapons and so on to, uh, to Taiwan, at least by sea. So there are a number of, of intermediate steps short of a full-scale invasion. I, I personally think the likelihood of a full-scale invasion is very low. The Chinese have never undertaken an amphibious operation. It would look something like D-Day, uh, and it would have to be huge, and it would require a lot of softening up. But the other thing is, and here's what here's where I think uh, both Putin and Xi, uh, where Putin made a mistake and one would wonder if Xi is, to, is learning from it, Xi can bring enormous pressure on Taiwan without ever firing a shot through cyber and through economic measures. He could bring Taiwan to its knees and, and create huge incentives for Taiwan to have a very different attitude toward China. 
So I personally think the full scale, first of all, you cannot mount that kind of an invasion of, of Taiwan without triggering every intelligence system in the world. You, you will have a long lead time in terms of preparing and whether it means uh, rearming, uh, giving significant new arms to Taiwan and so on. Uh, so I think, I think there are a variety of steps militarily and in cyber that she could take that fall well short of an all-out assault on Taiwan that could result in the kinds of economic consequences that the, that the Russians are facing uh, and, and without uh, the kind of global opprobrium that would come. I have uh, one final question for the both of you, um, and that is, uh, well, as a student of Soviet history, Dr. Gates, you scrutinized what was essentially a rise and rivalry and eventually stalemate of two world powers going head to head, the risks and stakes involved, which went as far as potential outright nuclear conflict. And we're now seeing a slow moving but very real rivalry emerging with that of China, which last year overtook the US as the world's richest country. At what point does the Chinese superpower become the world superpower? How should America handle that transition and how is it possible to avoid a new Cold War against the East? Well, I think there are, I think there are a number of areas in which the United States uh, still leads China. And, and I think that two great powers can coexist. Um, I think that the integration of China's economy with the rest of the world um, has a has a has an influence in terms of decision making, um, and and I would just offer up the fact that the Chinese banks, for example, are adhering to the sanctions uh, against Russia. They are the the Chinese are being very careful not to get crossways with any of the sanctions that have been imposed against Russia. So when it comes to their economy, which is under significant pressure, and this year for the first time in more than 20 years, US GDP will probably be higher than that of China. Um, they have a lot of pressures on them. And so I, I, think that the, I think the world can accommodate having these two uh, huge powers uh, in a competition. And, and my concern, and what I've written a lot about, is that if, as we were able to with the Cold War, avoid a major direct military confrontation with China, then we are going to have to up our game in a number of arenas, whether it's strategic communications or something to compete with Belt and Road. But I think we can compete, and we and our allies together in particular compete, can compete effectively with China and basically show that Liberal democracy actually, uh, over the longer term, uh, is is better for everybody uh, than authoritarianism. I won't um, repeat Bob's analysis with which I agree, but I'll add one further point. Your question is predicated on China's continued rise. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is the power structures in China, I think, are extremely brittle. And China is far more prone, despite what Bob said right at the beginning of this interview, <laughs> to a really severe political crisis than the United States, in my opinion. And one shouldn't just sit there and assume that China's growth is going to be an ever upward graph, because there will be fractures in the power structure, 
at some point in the future, and these could make China's development very, very problematic, both economically, socially, militarily. And uh, I'm I, I'm of the view that you know it, China is not going to follow this steady upward graph, and I also have a firm belief in the fundamental strength of the U.S. economy and its ability to be entrepreneurial in a way that an authoritarian state cannot be. But uh, perhaps I'm a little bit naive in making that judgment. But it's a good note maybe on which to conclude. Well, well, it's quite, it brings us back to what we said at the beginning, actually, because I think we are seeing America's institutions being very, very tested. Uh, and what you said, Dr. Gates, at the start, where you posited that perhaps the greatest threat to America may lie in its domestic turmoil. And I promise this is the last question I'm going to ask. Uh, Dr. Gates, I want to ask your view on the 2024 election. And if President Trump were to announce that he were to run again for office, would you support that candidacy? Do you think it would be uh, for the good of American national security or not? Well, you know, I worked um, over the past half century for eight different U.S. presidents of both political parties. And one thing that made that possible was that I kept my personal politics to myself. And I see no reason to change that half century of uh, experience at this point. <laughs> good, I will say this, since, since we're having a final question. I will say this. There is, in my view, a glimmer of hope. And ironically, it is provided by Putin and by Xi. For the first... Uh, those two men have accomplished what no other human being alive today has accomplished. And that is they have brought both Republicans and Democrats together on Capitol Hill in the Congress. There is a broad consensus in the United States Congress from left to right on the need to respond strongly and powerfully and toughly to both Putin's depredations and to China. And, and, and there you have a foundation for restoring a bipartisan foreign policy for the United States, which was central to our success in the Cold War. We had a consistent policy through nine different presidencies. And if you can build on the bipartisanship of, host of hostility to Russia and China, it may be that that serves a foundation for bipartisanship to grow in other areas. I have confidence in the American polity to deal with its own problems. Much greater confidence than China. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Dr. Gates, thank you so much for your time. Sir Richard, thank you so much for joining us in this discussion. Really appreciate having both of you on today. My pleasure. Richard, it's great to see you. Very nice to see you, Bob. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our new episodes every week. Next time, we're live from the Spanish capital Madrid and the upcoming NATO conference. To give their takes on the tough choices facing the alliance in a time of war, we'll have a former Secretary General of NATO, the head of Chatham House, and the defence editor at The Times. Sign up on our website, www.onedecisionpodcast.com. See you there.